Well, again, good morning, and why don't you take your Bibles and open with me to Titus chapter 1. That time has come for us to begin our study through this epistle of Titus. It's a short epistle. If I'm not mistaken, it's the fourth shortest in the entire Bible, fourth shortest book of the Bible when going by word count. And today we're going to launch into a verse-by-verse exposition of this book. Now, whenever I start off on a new book, I like to begin by getting the big picture, doing the big picture. Every verse of Scripture is important, which is why we're going to go through verse by verse by verse. We, We want to see it all. But before we drill down and take a really detailed look at God's Word over the next months, several months, we, we need to first take a look at the forest, so to speak. We, we need to first know what forest we're in. Let's say it was your job to take a survey of all the trees in a given forest. So you're walking around, and, and as you're doing your job, you stumble upon this, this huge redwood tree. Now, is that significant? Well, it kind of depends what forest you're in. If you're in the Redwood National Forest, no, it's not really that significant. But if you're in the Amazon Rainforest, well, then, yeah, it's, it's hugely significant because those trees don't normally grow there. And so you spend more time studying and examining that Redwood tree. I think you get the point. Similarly, if, if we're going to spend all this time looking at these individual trees or verses in Titus, then to see the real significance, they need a greater context. We need to get to know the forest we're in. We need to get to know the big picture. We need to get to know Titus. That's what I want to do today. To ensure a more profitable study throughout this book of Titus, I want to spend today helping you get acquainted with this book as a whole. So where do we begin? Well, let's start off by reading the introduction to Titus, the first four verses. We're going to come back next week and take a more detailed pass through these four verses But this morning, we're going to use them to also introduce us to the letter as a whole and really to get us started into getting to know this this letter, Titus. So look at with me Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's start off with a few simple questions. First, who wrote Titus as we're getting to know the book? Well, Paul did. The Apostle Paul, as it says here, is very well attested to by the early church. Second question, where does Titus fit into Paul's writings? Well, Titus actually was the second to last letter that Paul ever wrote, the last being 2 Timothy. Both 1 Timothy and Titus were written in that time in between Paul's two Roman imprisonments, second of which led to his death. Now, here, let me give you a quick refresher on the end of Paul's life, in case you forgot or maybe never knew. <clears throat> Near the end of the book of Acts, we see Paul. He gets arrested because the Jews are inciting a riot against him. They're demanding his life. So he gets arrested by the Romans. In a shrewd move, though, 
Paul appeals to Caesar. And being a Roman citizen, that means he's going to get shipped off to Rome where he's going to stand trial before Caesar himself and plead his case, plead his innocence. So that happens. Fast forward to the end of Acts, and the book ends with Paul in Rome, in prison, waiting that trial. That's where the book of Acts ends. Well, two years go by where Paul is in that prison in Rome. That is his first Roman imprisonment, but that was not to end in death. He would survive that. He would eventually plead his case before Caesar, get released. And then after that time, after his release, he immediately went back to work. He immediately went back to ministry. He revisited several churches that he planted. Some think he made it to Spain, which is where he always wanted to go. And then he wrote the letters of 1 Timothy and Titus during that time. Later, though, Paul was again arrested again imprisoned in Rome. This time, though, it would be his last. He would be beheaded after that, history tells us. But during that final imprisonment, the second Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote one letter, 2 Timothy. That's why when you read 2 Timothy, it has the mood of a man who is about to die, and he knows it. And Paul did know it at that time that that was going to be his last. But not the case with 1 Timothy and Titus, though, when he's writing these. Remember, he's free. He's back to work. He's doing ministry again. That's when he writes Titus. He's instructing these younger men, Timothy and Titus, to diligently shepherd the flock and carry on the work of the ministry. Speaking of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, these three letters are known as the pastoral epistles. Epistle, by the way, just means letter. So if you're wondering what an epistle is, it just means a letter you write to someone. The pastoral, they're called pastoral because they're written to, well, these shepherds, these, these pastors, these men of God who were shepherds of the flock. And if I can interest you guys in a quick rabbit trail, do you know, are you familiar with how the New Testament itself is organized? It's popped up while I was studying, and I thought you know, this would be a, a valid couple-minute ra- rabbit trail for you guys just to, to instruct you a little bit, help you better get to know your Bibles. There is a method to the madness, so to speak, when it comes to your New Testament, how the books are laid out and organized. And so let me explain that to you, if you will humor me. Why don't you turn to your Bible's table of contents, and I'll just show you some things, help you know. Hopefully this will help you get to better know your Bible in general. Now, I'm sure you guys know the Bible, New Testament, it's not really organized chronologically. The early church instead, they they organized the letters of the New Testament based on two criteria, authorship and content. Authorship and content. So first, we have four books organized by content. The Gospels, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then comes the one and only real narrative or historical book of the New Testament, Acts. Now Luke and Acts, that's really volume one and volume two of, of the same book. So you may wonder, well, why aren't they next to each other? Why aren't they right side by side? Well, the early church wanted to keep Matthew, Mark, and Luke next to each other because they're so similar and they're written in a similar time period. But John was written near the end of the first century, so they definitely wanted John to be last. So they put John in between Luke and Acts just to keep them together by content. Next up, you'll see are Paul's 13 epistles. Do you see that? Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. These are Paul's 13 epistles, and within these, there are subgroups. 
First, you have the, the church epistles or letters to the seven churches. You see how those first nine letters or so are written to churches, the, the destination, the recipient? It's a church. It's not a person. He wrote to, or he wrote to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth twice, churches of Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and then twice to Thessalonica. It's the church epistles. Next on the list are the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which we covered. These weren't written to churches. These were written to people, in particular pastors or shepherds. So these get, these, those got grouped together. And then last but not least on the list is Philemon, which is, it stands alone in the category of personal letter. There's a personal letter that Paul wrote to a friend. Next in the New Testament comes Hebrews, which, as you might imagine, it was deliberately placed after Paul's 13 epistles because early church was so split on whether or not Paul wrote it. They believed it belonged in Scripture, but they weren't sure if Paul wrote it or not, so they just put it last. And then comes, after Paul's epistles, the general epistles. These are called by different names, but they're basically all short letters written by other apostles or prophets. James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. And then, of course, last but not least, is Revelation. It's an obvious choice for the last book of the New Testament because it deals with end times. It was written last, and it concludes with a warning not to add to the existing body of Scripture. So, there you go. That's your New Testament. That's how it was laid up. There's a method there. It's a bit of a rabbit trail, but hopefully profitable and Back to Titus, we can see where Titus fits into this. It's written near the end of Paul's writing career. So we know who wrote it. We know a little bit about its place in the canon. Now I want to start getting into the recipient itself. This being a pastoral epistle is written not to a church, but to an individual, to Titus. And so getting to know Titus himself will prove most helpful in helping us really get to understand this letter. We need to know this guy, Titus. Who was he? What was his relationship with Paul? That's critical information if we're to know this letter. They had an existing relationship. We need to peer in on that. Look at verse 4 of Titus chapter 1 again. He says to Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So who is this guy, Titus? We'll start off in verse 4. Paul speaks of him as his, what, true child in a common faith. And Paul spoke of Timothy the same way. These two guys, they weren't Paul's biological children, his biological sons, but they were his spiritual children. In all likelihood, Paul led both Timothy and Titus to the faith, to salvation, and then certainly he discipled them. He raised them up in the way over many years. They were his spiritual children. And he raised them to be co-laborers in the gospel with him. What else do we know about Titus, though, from the New Testament? I mean, can you think of any other place where this guy Titus shows up, where he pops up in the New Testament? I mean, is there any other place? Some of you might be wondering, maybe not, I can't really think of any other place where Titus shows up. In reality, though, Titus is mentioned 12 other times in Scripture. The surprising thing is that none of those 12 are in Acts. Titus isn't in Acts. He was there. He was ministering with Paul, but his name never shows up. He never shows up. Instead, we learn of Titus mostly from 2 Corinthians and Galatians, and then a little bit from 2 Timothy. So here's what I want to do. 
I want us this morning to really get to know Titus the man. Before we get to know Titus the letter, let's get to know Titus the man. The more we peer into this guy's life, the more we get to know him, the better we're going to understand the letter that bears his name. And on top of that, in addition to that, there's so much we can learn from Titus's character. He was a man of God. He was a servant of God. And Paul really set him aside to be an example for us. We are to follow in men like Timothy's and Titus's footsteps. They're our models for the Christian life. And we would do well to learn from and imitate their faith. So, for our time this morning, as we prepare our way for this new book study and, and ease our way into it, I want us to better know and learn from Titus, the man. And so in particular, I want to give you three lessons from the life of Titus so that you may likewise lead an exemplary Christian life. Three lessons from the life of Titus. So you may likewise lead an exemplary Christian life. Now, to get things started, I want us to look at the first text in Scripture, chronologically speaking, where Titus shows up. And that would be Galatians chapter 2. So why don't you turn there with me. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 1 talks about Paul's conversion. Paul, and you remember this, Paul, he wasn't led to the faith by another Christian or even by one of the apostles. How was Paul converted? By, by Christ himself. I mean, Jesus showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus and changed him and transformed him, saved him. And so here is this guy Saul at the time, the great persecutor of the church, who gets saved and becomes one of the greatest advocates for the church. Massive transformation. And then immediately Christ commissions Paul to be a minister of the gospel, and then chiefly to the Gentiles. That was his mission. So that's what Paul does. When he gets saved, he doesn't spend his early years in Jerusalem. He's not hanging out with the apostles. He's not sitting at their feet. He's not being discipled by them. He gets saved, and then almost immediately he goes north to minister doesn't spend time with the apostles. Three years go by after this. He briefly visits Peter in Jerusalem, but then goes back north. doesn't stay with them long. Then after that, 14 years go by. 14 years. And Paul has very little interaction and personal relationship with the apostles. He's almost doing his own thing up north. They're doing their ministry in Jerusalem, and they're not necessarily working side by side. And keep, keep in mind, this is all before, this is all taking place before Paul wrote any of his letters of the New Testament. So that's, that's setting up Galatians 2, 1 through 3. Let's read that. Galatians 2, 1 through 3. He's, re, he's recording his own history. He says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now let me explain what's going on here. Paul, he's ministering the gospel for over 14 years to the Gentiles in the north. And never during those years did Paul really meet with the apostles and confirm 
that they were preaching the same thing. I mean, for all Paul knew, that the, the apostles could have been down in Jerusalem preaching something different, teaching something entirely different. He never spent that much time with them. And so it says, because of some revelation that he received from God, he traveled to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and make sure they were in agreement. It's as if God is ready to have Paul and the other apostles formally link together in the ministry and really start working side by side in the ministry. He's ready for Paul to to join them. Because at this time, as you know, Paul wasn't one of Christ's original disciples. He was very much viewed at, at this point as being on the outside looking in. But God now, he wants to bring him in and really put him shoulder to shoulder with the other apostles. So he sends him to Jerusalem. Verse 2, Paul then submitted to them, the apostles, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. It's like he's going to say to them, hey, so here's what I've been preaching for the past 14 years. Here's the gospel I've been preaching for all these years. What about you guys? What have you been preaching? Is it the same thing? He even expresses a little bit of fear that he might have been running in vain. He had been a Christian now for 17 to 18 years. It's a long time. He didn't want all that to be for nothing. He, he didn't want to be deceived himself. Because here's the thing. Paul knew these were the apostles. I mean, they were with Christ. They witnessed his, they witnessed his death. They witnessed his resurrection. If either side was wrong, it was going to be Paul, and he knew that. Because they were it. They were the standard at that time. That They were receiving everything from God directly. And so if, if his gospel didn't line up with theirs, he was wrong. And he knew that going in. But at the same time, he was also very confident in the revelation given to him by God. And he was confident that he did have the truth. But nonetheless, he goes to Jerusalem and he, and he gets this done. And thankfully, Paul's gospel was approved. And it was confirmed by the apostles as being the same. And just think about that. That's really a testimony to God's revelation and Paul's apostleship. I mean, here you have these two separate groups, the apostles in the south, Paul in the north. They're preaching separately for 14 years plus. Not much interaction. Then they get together after those time. They didn't have the, the New Testament, you know to guide them, to, to explain to them. They were going at that early stage just by God's direct revelation. Separately, they get together after 14 years, and guess what? Same thing. Same doctrine, same gospel, same truth. It's all the same. And that really is an amazing testimony to, to God and to his revelation, his faithfulness in bringing along the early church. And now let me explain verse 3. Paul says, But not even... Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. You see, part of the direct revelation given to Paul was that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. That's what God revealed to Paul directly, independently. Now, here's the thing. There's these false believers at the time roaming around. You may have heard of them. They were called the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians, Jews, who converted to Christianity, supposedly, but they didn't have the gospel. They didn't have the true gospel. Theirs was another gospel, as Paul makes a big deal of in Galatians. Theirs was a false gospel. Why? What were they preaching so different? I mean, they believed in Jesus. They did. They did believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior. They had faith in Jesus, but where'd they go wrong? 
they added something to faith. They said salvation for the Gentiles was faith plus works. Faith plus circumcision. Faith plus keeping the Mosaic law. That's what they were teaching. They, for, for the Gentiles in particular, as more and more Gentiles were starting to come to salvation in Christ, they said, well, hold on, you Gentiles. If you really want to join us in our movement, if for you to be saved, you need faith plus keeping the works of Moses, keeping the, the word of the law. And that's what they're saying. And that right there made there's a false gospel, a works-based gospel, addition to the truth, and therefore false. But verse 3, Paul confirms, and the apostles confirm that that is false. They reject that and teach that salvation is by grace through faith alone including something like circumcision, which was the biggest deal back then. They wanted all these Gentiles to be circumcised. Now, big question. Why are we studying this? Why why are we going through this? Well, it's because from this passage, we encountered the first lesson from the life of Titus that I want to point out to you. The first lesson from Titus' life, and that is, number one, be firm in the gospel. Be firm in the gospel in the gospel. That's the first lesson we want to glean from the life of Titus here. Where am I getting this? Well, verse 3. Look again, Galatians 2. He says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In other words, Titus, like Paul, he was thoroughly convinced in justification or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, including circumcision. He was convinced of that. He was thoroughly convinced. His hope was in Christ alone. He knew it. He felt no pressure to get circumcised or conform to Judaism to be saved. And that was really significant for a Gentile believer in the first century. And for us, this seems kind of strange. It seems kind of foreign. I assume everyone in this room is a Gentile, is a non-Jew. You don't have Jewish ancestry. It makes you a Gentile. Well, when we came to salvation, I don't know about you, I didn't feel too much pressure to conform to the law of Moses to be saved. It just didn't happen. Nobody was pressuring me to keep the Sabbath or observe all the laws or whatever. But for the first century Gentile, this was huge. There's immense pressure coming from these Judaizers. But theirs was a false gospel. It was faith plus works. But nevertheless, it swept away countless Gentile believers. They got carried away by this. But not Titus. And that's the point. Not Titus. Why? Because he was firm in the gospel. He got it. He got it right. And then he held on to it. He was not going to be so easily swayed from the truth. So easily taken away. He was not going to so easily give into outside pressure and give up Salvation by grace through faith in Christ apart from the law. He wasn't going to do it. And so being firm in the gospel like this, Titus was a trophy, a trophy of grace, a trophy of, gospel, of the gospel on Titus's, on Christ's shelf. And that's a lesson to learn here. You and I both, we need to imitate Titus in this regard. You, you need to know the gospel. You need to get it right. And then you need to be firm in the gospel. That's why a couple weeks ago the first official message I ever preached here was on nothing but the gospel. It's foundational. 
So are you firm in the gospel? Are you really convinced that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law? I mean, do you really get that? Do you really get what's in that? Or are you here because this is your tradition? You're here because this is how you were raised. This is what you're used to. This is kind of what you do as a Christian. Or do you get it? You need to search God's word, solicit the help of others, ensure that you're getting these things right. And then for those who do, do you cherish the gospel, the message of your salvation? What would it take for you to give it up? What would it take for you to give it up? How much pressure would you endure for the truth? Both men and women in the early church, they were so firm in the gospel that they would not give it up even if it cost them their lives. And for many of them, it did. They took it to the grave. That's how firm in the gospel they were. If God so willed, could you take it that far? Could you take your faith in Christ, your clinging to the gospel that far. God wants all Christians to be so firm in the gospel that whatever the call, they accept. They stand up. They rise. Now, I think many Christians, they are, when it comes to the gospel, firm, firm in doctrine, firm in the truth. But at the same time, the pressures of the world and the nagging persecutions of society make them shy. They take their lamp, so to speak, and they hide it under a basket. But in addition to being firm in the gospel, they also need to be bold in the faith. And that's the second lesson I want to point out to you from the life of Titus. The second lesson, be bold in the faith. We see that here as well. Back in Galatians 2, look at verse 1. Paul, he received this revelation. He had to go to Jerusalem, testify testify before the apostles... But whom did he choose to take with him on this all-important mission? Verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now Barnabas was Titus's right-hand man. They were partners in ministry at this time, a little early on. They were co-laborers of the gospel. They stood shoulder to shoulder, Paul, Barnabas, but not Titus. Later in verse 9 in Galatians 2, after the apostles approved Paul's message, they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go be ministers of gospel of the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, look at verse 9 of Galatians 2. He says, And recognizing the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Where's Titus? Titus was there, but he doesn't get the right hand of fellowship. He doesn't get commissioned to go be a minister of the gospel. And why is that? Well, it's because at this early time, Titus was not yet Paul's ministry partner. He wasn't his co-laborer yet. He's like the intern, so to speak. But why is he there? Why, Why was he brought along? Titus was brought along on this mission to Jerusalem to be an example of Paul's gospel. Do you get that? Titus was exhibit A, that Paul preached salvation by faith apart from works. For he was a Greek, Titus was. 
And picture court courtroom scene here. Everything that's going on in Galatians 2, it parallels Acts chapter 15, which is known as the Jerusalem Council. And this is a big deal. If you've heard of this, you know about this. It's a big deal in the early church. It's our first major challenge of the early, early church, first turning point for the early church, because at this point, they were really determining the fate of Gentile believers. As you as I, and as you as I know, you and I know, when we look around the church today, the vast majority of, of believers are Gentiles. The vast majority. And so they were determining the, the fate of the church here at this Jerusalem council. These Judaizers were coming in. They were teaching that Gentiles can only be saved by faith plus circumcision. But it was at this council that the apostles, they, they took together, they took a stand against this false teaching in favor of the true gospel. And what they did was they cleared the path for the hordes of Gentile believers to come. They, they really cleared the way for all believers. So picture this courtroom scene. The apostles are there. They're like the judges. Paul is there. He's like an attorney. Titus, what's Titus's role? He's the chief witness. He is the key witness in this case. Paul is going to take his stand before the apostles, declare his ministry, declare that he preached salvation by grace through faith apart from works, including circumcision, and then he would say what? Case in point, Titus. Exhibit A, Titus. Key witness, Titus. That's what Titus was doing here. And when you think about Titus's role, that's a, that's a big deal. It takes quite a bit of boldness to go and stand up in front of the apostles like this. I'm surely at this point, as Paul put forward Titus as this example of a Greek who, who got the gospel right, they would have questioned him. They would have cross-examined him. They would have picked apart his testimony to determine what he really believed. Was he going to buckle under the pressure? Well, the answer was no. Titus withstood the test. He stayed true. I mean, think about it. The fact that Paul chose Titus for this mission speaks volumes of Titus's character. Are you getting it? Paul, Paul chose Titus for this job because he was firm in the gospel and then secondly, bold in the faith. Paul knew if he brought Titus along, Titus wasn't going to shrink back under the pressure. I mean, he's standing in front of the apostles, but Titus was not going to shrink back. He was bold. He would stand up there in front of anybody and tell them what he believed, tell them the gospel that he knew was true no matter what. He was bold. And Paul knew he had to pick the right man for the job to, to make this testimony. He chose Titus. He's bold in the faith. He's bold in, in, in any circumstance. Are you bold in the faith like this? Could you testify of the gospel like Titus did? I think for most people, they, they tremble just at the thought of public speaking, let alone publicly declaring to the world the gospel, standing up in front of a crowd, Declaring the gospel. We need to learn from Titus's example here and be bold in the faith. God may not call all of you to publicly testify of the gospel like this. He may not have it in his plan for you to go stand on a street corner, get up on a soapbox, and preach the gospel. Although I wish that happened more often. But nonetheless, God does call you to, to testify. Your witness 
You are a witness in the in God's court. He calls you to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls you to be a witness when every day you're called to court to testify of Christ. You can't escape that. You're called to be a witness. And so like Titus, in whatever the arena, whatever the circumstance, you need to rise to the occasion and be bold in the faith. Stand up for the faith. It's a must. You know, maybe you go out with coworkers at lunch every so often. And you keep telling yourself, you know, one of these days I'm going to tell them about Jesus. One of these days I'll share the gospel with them. But it never happens. You never actually get around to it. Why? Because you're scared. You're scared of what they might think. You're scared of how they might react. You're scared of how it might damage your relationship or your working environment. But don't be scared. What do you really have to fear? You're a witness of the king. What do you really have to fear? Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So pray. Pray and ask God for boldness in the faith. It's what you need. And whether with your coworkers or your friends or your relatives, you need boldness in the faith. You have good news to tell them. You need to tell them that with boldness. How many Thanksgivings have gone by? How many Christmases have gone by where you see all those unsaved relatives and you fail to share the gospel with them? That's the only time you see them all year. But one year after another, after another, you just let those opportunities go by. You need the boldness. You need boldness in the faith. I know, I know, trust me. You fear the persecution. I get it. We all fear the persecution at times. But, but guess what? I mean, if you are really faithful and bold to share the gospel with people around you, to tell them about Christ, who he is, what he's done, his death and resurrection, his payment for sins, if you're faithful to tell people that, do you think they're going to persecute you? Yes. Of course they will persecute you sooner or later. In fact, Christ promised He promised that you will be persecuted for his name's sake. He said you will. It's going to happen. So the question is, why are you trying so hard to avoid it? Why bother? Instead of praying that God would keep you free from persecution, instead pray that God would give you boldness in the face of it. That needs to be your prayer request. No longer running, hiding, trying to get away from it. Pray that God would make you bold, like Titus, in the faith. That's what you need. That's the second lesson here, to learn from the life of Titus. Whatever your circumstances, surely it will be different from Titus's. But likewise, you too need to be bold in the faith. I want to move on now to another text. Learn more from Titus's life. Help us get to know this guy even more. So turn now to 2 Corinthians. This is where we learn the most about Titus. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 12. We got an early glimpse into the life of Titus from Galatians. Now we're going to see him later when he's more mature, when he's further along. 2 Corinthians 12. By the time we encounter Titus here in 2 Corinthians, a lot of time has passed since Galatians 2, the Jerusalem Council. Paul has gone on his second missionary journey where he took the gospel for the first time into Europe. And near the end of that trip, 
He spent a year and a half in Corinth. That's where we get Corinthians from. After that, Acts chapter 18, Paul begins his third missionary journey. At the beginning of that journey, he spends three years in Ephesus. Now, this isn't mentioned in Acts, but during that time in Ephesus, Titus is with Paul. Titus is with Paul ministering in Ephesus. How do we know that? Well, 2 Corinthians tells us that. More than once, Paul sent Titus from Ephesus to Corinth on missions, ministry missions, multiple times. They're there for three years. He kept sending Titus, go to Corinth, go to Corinth, go to Corinth on these important missions. And we see at this point, Titus became Paul's co-laborer. He became Paul's go-to guy. If there's something that had to get done, if there's ministry that needed to be accomplished, Titus was the guy. Paul could rely on him. He was, he was faithful. We've seen Titus, a picture of faithfulness. He was always ready, willing, able, faithful. The first Corinthian mission Paul sent Titus on was to help collect a special offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. The, the, the believers in Jerusalem, they were the poorest of the poor. They were in, in dire poverty. So on several occasions, Paul collected an offering from the churches in Greece, churches in Macedonia, to send to Jerusalem. And Titus was to go collect that offering. And Paul, here in 2 Corinthians 12, he testifies of Titus's faithful character in this. Look at verse 18. He says, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? What he's saying is, yeah, I'm sending Titus to, to get your money, but, but don't worry. He's not going to take your money and run. He's not going to cheat you. No, but Paul is saying, I'm sending you Titus. He's trusted. He's trustworthy. He's proven. He's faithful. Titus was the man for this job. The second mission Paul sent Titus on was to help fix the problems in the Corinthian church. And if you guys remember from 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church is pretty messed up. They had a lot of problems. Immorality. Factions. Misuse of spiritual gifts. A lack of love. And there's several problems in this church. And furthermore, there were many in the Corinthian church who denied Paul's apostleship and re rejected his leadership. But Titus was sent to help sort out some of these problems. That was no small task. That's like going into a firestorm. This was a hostile environment, a dysfunctional environment. Paul needed someone he could count on to go and minister, to shepherd these hurting believers. Now it's Titus. No matter the call, Titus is going to rise to the occasion and, and go. So Titus went to Corinth. And here's the plan after this. The plan after this trip was that Titus and Paul would rally up in this place called Troas where Titus would tell him how things went. Paul wanted to know, did they receive his letter favorably or not so much? Well, Paul goes to Troas, but when he gets there, Titus isn't, isn't there. He's nowhere to be found. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. This is where he speaks of this incident. Chapter 2, 12 and 13, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Why? Not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. 
So Paul, he's expecting Titus there, but he's not there. So Paul says, you know, I'm going to move on to Macedonia. Well, let's fast forward to that. Look at chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. He said, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So what's happening is that Titus, he's come back from this second journey, the second mission to the city of Corinth. And guess what? It was a success. It was a successful mission. The Corinthians had accepted Paul's harsh letter and received it favorably. And that brought Paul and Titus great joy. So success. Are you starting to see a pattern here with Titus, this faithful servant? Faithful, reliable, dependable, wise, strong, bold. Basically, if you're team captain and you're picking ministry teams, you want Titus on your team. You want to pick a guy like Titus. After these events, after all this took, took place, what did Paul do? He wrote 2 Corinthians. This is when he wrote 2 Corinthians. And who's he sending to deliver 2 Corinthians? Well, Titus. Titus was to deliver 2 Corinthians to the church and finished collecting that offering. Now let's fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. He says, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So what he's saying here is after the Corinthian church repented, received Paul's letter, Titus himself was so encouraged that he was he was eager to get back. He wanted to get back to keep ministering to the church. He loved the church. It's another picture of his faithfulness. He doesn't have to be told to go back. doesn't have to be coerced. He just goes of his own accord because he wants to serve these people. And that's why Paul commends him in verse 23. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker. And that's a serious commendation. Paul spoke of Barnabas this way back in Acts 15, but now he's speaking of Titus this way. Now, after these years, Titus has risen to the occasion. He was faithful in the ministry, and labored for the gospel such that now Titus stands shoulder to shoulder with Paul. He's no longer the, the intern. He's now up there co-laboring with Paul. And this all brings us to the third lesson that I want us to see from Titus's life. Be faithful in the ministry. Be faithful in the ministry. I mean, talk about a picture of faithfulness. That's why I labored the point. I've been just going text after text, just showing you everything Titus was sent on. It's kind of labor-intensive, but it really gives you a picture of this guy Titus. And who was he? Well, for one, he was faithful in the ministry. He served using his spiritual gifts, and he did this faithfully. And that's what you need to do. This is the model that you need to, to follow. The faithfulness... It really should be the, the lowest common denominator in the church. It's a basic requirement for all of us. It's, it's just that simple. You don't have to be number one 
in what you do in the church. You don't have to be the best, the fastest, the smartest, most efficient. You just have to be faithful. First and foremost, that's what God wants. What does it mean? Well, for one, being faithful just means showing up. You show up, you show up regularly. There's a commitment level here where you're committed to the body, committed to the church. I mean, just imagine, if your lifelong dream was to play in the major leagues, and then you finally made it, you made a team, don't you think you're going to show up to all the practices, all the games? Yeah, you're going to show up. There's a basic faithfulness there, and likewise, the faithful Christian shows up and is excited to show up on Sundays and not on Sundays. Anytime something is going on, he or she is there, meeting needs as they arise, doing whatever ministry work needs to be done. That's what it looks like to be faithful. It's not just coming on Sunday morning and leaving. In addition to showing up, being faithful means working hard doing the work of the ministry until it gets done, until it gets done rightly. You know, right now, for instance, I'm going to start looking for a faithful servant to serve at church by mowing the lawn periodically. Something needs a bit to get done, so I'm going to look for a faithful servant. That's the only requirement. So we need someone who will be faithful and show up. We also need someone who will be faithful and do the work. You know, I don't want someone to come here, mow half the lawn, and say, you know what, I'm kind of tired, I'm going to leave. Not going to work. Or, you know, they mow a third of the lawn, they said, you know, I just don't feel like doing this anymore, I'm going to leave. Not what we want, that's not faithfulness. We need someone who is faithful and who will do the work of the ministry until it gets done. That's what you need to be doing with whatever you do. And you may not think that something like mowing grass is as glorious as preparing a sermon, but you're wrong. God has distributed different spiritual gifts according to his will, and he gets glory simply when you are faithful to serve with the particular spiritual gift that he has entrusted to you, be it mowing the lawn or preparing a sermon. It doesn't matter. God gets glory simply when you are faithful to do what he called you to do. It's just that simple. So are you faithful in the ministry? Ministry, again, it's not just for me, it's not just for pastors, for every single one of you. Are you faithful? Are you serving with your spiritual gifts? If the answer is no, why not? If the answer is yes, are you being faithful in it? It's that most basic requirement. You ask any spiritual leader, I'm convinced, ask any spiritual leader, and there's just one thing. If they could have one thing from their people, this would be it, faithfulness. Just give me faithful people. Tops my list. It apparently tops, topped Paul's list. And Titus was a man who exemplified for all of us what it looks like to be faithful in the ministry, faithful in the Christian life. And we need that. We need this model. We need this example. If you want to likewise lead an exemplary Christian life, then you need to heed these three lessons from the life of Titus. Be firm in the gospel, be bold in the faith, be faithful in the ministry. That's a few more notes here, just to bring you up to speed. Paul, he writes 2 Corinthians, he gives it to Titus, he sends Titus off to Corinth to deliver the letter. By By the time Paul eventually gets to the church of Corinth, Titus is gone. 
He's not there anymore. He's moved on. Most likely to more ministry. This is the last we hear of Titus in the New Testament for quite some time. But surely we know he was still hard at work being faithful in the ministry, ministering the gospel. How do I know this? Well, because the next time we see Paul in Scripture, guess what he's doing? Or, excuse me, the next time we see Titus in Scripture, guess what he's doing? He is continuing to faithfully minister and serve others with the gospel. And where is that? Where is the next time we see Titus? Well, it's on this little island called Crete. So now you can actually turn back to the epistle to Titus. This is where we encounter Titus next. So turn to Titus 1 again. We'll just take a one thing. But just here, as you're turning, I mean, after all we've covered, all this background we went over today, I mean, are you already starting to better appreciate what's going on in this letter to Titus? I mean, do you see the backstory now? Do you, do you see this long-standing relationship that Paul had with Titus? That really changes your perspective in reading this letter to Titus, doesn't it? This is not just a letter to some random guy. This is Paul's, this is a letter that Paul is writing later on in life to his friend, to his co-laborer in the gospel. I mean, they've been in the trenches together. This should really start to make these pages pop out in color and not black and white. When you see the relationship that they had together. And you see Titus's track record. We're starting to see who this guy was. This should help us really understand this letter as we move forward. Paul has one more mission for Titus. What was that? Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. What's his new mission on this island of Crete? Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. At some point, Paul got out of prison. He and Titus both went to Crete, but Paul moved on and he left Titus behind. And he left him to set the churches in order. That's that's a big deal. Notice it's plural. It doesn't say set the church in order. The church is. Timothy, Timothy only had to oversee one church, the church in Ephesus. Titus He has to oversee dozens of churches. He's put in charge of all these churches in Crete. It's a serious assignment. This is a difficult assignment. But who do you send on your most difficult assignments? Titus. You send Titus. Crete is a small island off the coast of Greece. I guess not that small. It's roughly the size of Connecticut. Churches already existed on this island before Paul and Titus ever got there. How did these churches get there? Well, at Pentecost, Acts 2, remember, some Jews from Crete were at Pentecost and they got saved. Presumably they went back to Crete and they started these churches. But by the, Paul, by, by the time Paul shows up, they were very young and immature churches. They were still very weak in the faith and they were being consumed by this very strong surrounding, surrounding pagan culture. They were being choked by this pagan culture on the island of Crete. And so many of these Christians were not living transformed lives in light of the gospel. So Titus was to really get these churches up and running, set them in order, all of them. It's a big deal. He had to stay in Crete, build up churches that were being suffocated by their pagan surroundings, raise up and appoint elders to shepherd these churches, teach and admonish the flock to live lives of godliness, and instruct everyone to let their lights shine before men. This is a big deal. 
This is a huge assignment to do for Titus. It would be Titus's most difficult mission today, but he was equipped to handle it, and he was faithful to do it. And he loved these churches, we learn. He loved these churches. He loved these people, because tradition tells us later in life, he came back to Crete as an old man, and he ministered there until he died. So, this is Titus, the man. This is Titus, the man. This is who this guy is. Firm in the gospel, bold in the faith, faithful in the ministry. And even from the relatively little we know about him, he's a model believer for us. He lived an exemplary life, and you and I would do well to to heed this example. He's an example for those in Crete to follow, and through scripture he's one for us to follow as as well. So both today and and, and all of our time as we go through this letter, it's it's exciting. You're going to really enjoy and be edified by this book of Titus. But throughout all of our time, consider Titus. Follow his example and become exemplary yourselves. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we, we praise you this morning for giving us a window into Scripture and to some of this history and background to this letter to Titus. There's so much in this book. There's so many profitable truths that you have for us, for your church, that we can learn and, and discern here. I pray over the course of the months to come, you would enlighten us. You would open our eyes. You would soften our hearts to receive your word implanted. Now we would learn a lot. And not just learn, Lord, that it would change our lives. Lord, help us to be like Titus. To the, to the degree that Titus followed Jesus, may we follow him. And learn to likewise ourselves be exemplary in the faith. Give us a confidence in the gospel. Help us to be firm in, the, in what we know and the truth that we have. And give us a boldness, Lord. All too often, we all fail. We, all, we fall short in declaring to the world the good news. But help us. Help us to be bold through your spirit within us. And Father, help us all to be faithful as well. You've given us work to do. That There's a lot of work to do. And you, you, you would have us to be faithful in it. I pray for all those here who aren't serving that, that you may continue to work on their hearts, to convict them, to rise up, to be faithful, to serve you, and to bring you much honor. For indeed, you are glorified when your people serve you, serve one another in love. Help this church be transformed to that degree. In your name we pray. Amen.